Hello and welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner. This is Jackson. Hey, this is Carrie. Thank you for joining us today. Today our topic is the gospel. And uh, we're going to be covering some material and conversation around the gospel based upon your book, Jackson, which is called One Gospel for All Nations. It was published in 2015 by William Carey. And uh, we're so grateful to have this conversation today. It's obviously a, um, uh, a, a conversation that for some is, is very significant and con- maybe even controversial. But for a lot of people, it's not controversial at all. It's like, mm. of course we know what the gospel yeah. is. So what, what's the big deal? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if you read the blogosphere, you'll find it uh, seems like a bajillion uh, post about what is the gospel, people debating uh, whether it be uh, Joshua Gibb, Scott McKnight, Greg Gilbert. I mean, one person after another saying this is the gospel. No, that's the gospel. You would think that we could all agree at least on what the gospel is. Yeah, so it it is uh, controver- controversial. And uh, uh, you make uh, the statement that it's possible to compromise the gospel by settling for the truth. Now, I remember the first time I think I read that in your blog, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What is he trying to get across there? It really made me pause. Uh, are you, You're talking about compromising the gospel by settling for the truth? What, what's going through your mind when you when you wrote that? <laughs> well, the analogy that I gave in the book— is a question that I ask people. I said, uh, imagine asking a husband, why did you marry your wife? And just imagine he said, well, because she's a woman. Well, the average (laughs) wife would not be so flattered by that, uh, that it was uh, mere, you know, chromosomes that, you know, that's not the most (laughs) romantic answer, but it is true. You know, the average husband will say, because she's a woman, I married her. If she had been a guy, she'd been a dude, well, the deal's off. And so it is true, but to say that is in some way a compromise of the answer, the quarrel mm-hmm. question that's being asked. And so that's one example of how you can compromise some answer by settling for it's merely true. And I think that we do that with the gospel is that when people, we preach the gospel, we say a lot of true, wonderful things and so we settle for truth, and, and in that way, we compromise what the biblical gospel actually is. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking through this question a little bit yesterday, and I was thinking, what if in my description of Star Wars, I said, well, you know, it's a it's a romantic comedy. Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> there are comedic parts <laughs> in it. There are comedic it. parts, and there's romantic parts, but that's really missing the fullness of the story. And I, I think that's what you're getting at, is mm. this idea of fullness, right? Mm, mm, yeah. mm. And not to say that you have to say everything, because right, right. you can't say everything all the time. But when you have particular omissions or you emphasize things that maybe are not as emphasized in the text, all of a sudden you slightly distort the picture and the message that's being mm. preached, even though you may never say anything wrong or false the entire time you're talking. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, I think in our own culture, we tend to f- uh, put formulas to things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to start a restaurant, you use you, 
you use a franchise model, you know, and you get a, a big manual that says, here's how you duplicate what's been done before. And you take this formula approach, just follow these steps and, you know, one, two, three, four. And uh, you've got you've got your formula. And I think in America, our culture uh, tries to get us to put things into formulaic mm -hmm. structure mm -hmm. using propositional statements and truths. Yeah. And a lot of times I think our gospel presentation ends up in that kind of simplified, um, simplified uh, way. So um, what are some formulas to the gospel that come to mind? Uh, what comes to mind, Carrie? Yeah, I mean, I think the real simple is there's this guy. Well, first of all, you know, you because someone a long time ago ate a piece of fruit, you now are a sinner. But don't worry. Jesus came. He died. He resurrected. You just have to say that out loud in, in a prayer. Sometimes the prayers, you know, given to you <laughs> as the sinner's mm -hmm. prayer, right? The extra biblical sinner's prayer. Repeat after me. Repeat after me. Right. So if you repeat that, then you're good. But we were just talking before we started recording is that there is no engagement in a Christian community requirement in that type of gospel proposition. You know, that's simply a I was I was at this place one day, I'm at a different place the next day, and then we kind of say, well, it's and now I get to go to heaven. Yeah. And we kind of leave it at that. And mm -hmm. it just mm -hmm. is, it's no wonder that that doesn't stick. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. And you're actually generous. In my research, I found oftentimes that people hardly ever mention the resurrection, mm. even when they talked about the gospel. Um, I was just trying to recall, uh, I think I mentioned this in the book, how uh, it was the, uh, there was this, even here, let's see, the Cambridge Declaration. Back in uh, 96, there were all these theologians, big name theologians that we would all respect. They created this statement saying, this is the gospel and that we stand, stand upon. And it's a lengthy statement, a lot about justification by faith and Christ dying on the cross. But when you look at this long, lengthy statement signed by all these big names, R.C. Sproul, Al Mohler, so forth and so on, there is not a single reference Hint, allusion to the resurrection in the entire document. That's mm, incredible. It, yeah. That's yeah. incredible. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I first saw mention of this by Tim Gombus, actually in a footnote on a blog post. And I thought, no, let me, let me see this for myself. <laughs> right. I, I mean, sure enough, there it is. And it, it's not that these guys deny the gospel. The yeah, resurrection, I mean, yeah. deny the resurrection, right, I mean. Right. But it's that they were so focused that they want to make sure that they really underscored just facing my faith that it just basically slipped their mind mm -hmm. and slipped their minds every time they were editing because they had a very specific thing they want to get across. And frankly, to me, if you're not talking about the resurrection, you're not talking about the gospel, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what uh, what you did in, in, your, uh, in your book, uh, Jackson, was to actually look at the scriptures, to look at the biblical text and to review all of the examples of gospel statements, presentations, gospel sermons, and identify them uh, according to category. Can mm. you talk about that? You you identified three categories or three frameworks uh, for the gospel. What what are they? Tell us a little bit about yeah. that. So you know, if I was going to try to make clear what the gospel was. I wanted to make sure that it was grounded in where we see the most explicit mentions of the gospel in the Bible. 
And so I looked at every place that the gospel is explicitly mentioned in either the Greek or Hebrew, and I wanted to see if any common themes popped out. And I certainly wouldn't say that the Bible only talks about the gospel where the word gospel is mentioned or, you know, in the Mm -hmm. verb form is mentioned. However, whatever we see as the gospel should be very snug and fit to whatever we see there, that pattern. Yeah, I mean, that's a good place to begin, where the word good news or gospel appears in the Old Testament or New Testament. So it should be at least our grounding, our framework, that everything else builds around there. Sure. But I found so often that people would assume a certain gospel message and then go to the Bible to justify it. Well, what they were really doing is they were justifying true theological statements, but not necessarily preaching the message and framing the message in the way that the biblical writers did. Typically... Typically, when you look at, say, tracks and whatever, it's a message that says, how do you get saved? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get to heaven? How do you- I, wait a minute. Are you saying <laughs> that the gospel is not or something more than how to get <laughs> saved? Well, that's where I say we compromise the gospel for selling for truth. Because, sure, the gospel has everything and a ton to do with salvation. However, the doctrine of salvation and the gospel, like, while they overlap, they are not identical you know, you, you can talk about, say, you know, election or sanctification or these other aspects of salvation and not necessarily be talking about the gospel, you know, proper. And so uh, the way I like to say it is this, that the gospel is not merely the message or not the message of how we get saved. And it's the message that we must believe in order to be saved. So it's not a how-to. It implies a how-to, but the message itself is not a how-to. It's not a message of how we get saved. It is the message we must believe in order to be saved. And and what you point out in your book, I believe, is that that what we must believe appears in Scripture according to three different themes, mm, mm, right? Mm, yes. So what are those themes? Succinctly, uh, they are uh, creation, covenant, and kingdom. Creation, covenant, and kingdom. And I had not seen anybody lay these out when I was doing my research, but when I started digging into a lot of biblical scholarship, biblical theologians, and they were developing these broad scope of the Bible, a picture of the Bible, I found that those actually, funny enough, whether they said it explicitly or not, were kind of organizing principles, reoccurring themes. It was those those themes that came up. And so— uh, I chart all of this in the back of the book. And these are not independent themes. They're highly intertwined. Uh, but, I mean, we can get into that. But uh, but th- those are the three themes that I say frame the gospel as it appears in Scripture. Okay, so before we get into actual examples uh, from Scripture of, of what you're talking about, how does it break out in terms of the number, as you recorded them and counted them, how many— for creation, how many for covenant, how many for kingdom? Creation, and by the way, where it wasn't clear, I didn't count it in the final count because I wanted to be as strict to myself as possible so that someone couldn't say I was fudging the numbers. Uh, For creation and covenant, the number was about 23 to 25 references each, and for kingdom, it was about 93 references. That, wow. that were unambiguous. These numbers are the unambiguous cases that you go, yeah, in this context, that definitely has kingdom overtones or covenant overtones. Mm. 
So you're talking about when a passage mentions gospel, it is within a kingdom, uh, I think you just said overtones, right? Right. So that would be one, Mm -hmm. one count. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if it had a dual theme, because sometimes they were overlapping, Mm -hmm. then I would count it for both of those because, well, if it's covenant and kingdom, well, I've got to count those. And it makes sense that kingdom would be so dominant because in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish mindset, creation was intricately linked to who's king, who was king. And, and covenant was something that kings enacted. So it's not surprising at all you see this constant funneling to this kingdom motif. Mm-hmm. So let's actually t- take a look at some uh, examples from Scripture, and we'll, we'll be looking at the uh, book of Acts and uh, trying to classify the different types of gospel presentations and which one of these three categories those gospel presentations uh, kind of fit into. So where would you like to begin, Jackson? Well, let's start with the kingdom motif. Um, Just to give a few examples from the Old Testament, because the New Testament quotes the Old Testament use of gospel all the time as well. So, for example, Paul quotes— Wait a minute, wait a minute. Gospel in the Old Testament. Let's (laughs) clarify for our hearers uh, where gospel shows up in the Old Testament, because I think for some that might be a new concept. Well, for example, Paul in Romans 10, 15 quotes Isaiah 52, verse 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, that is the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news. It's the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Mm, okay. In other words, your God is king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is one of the things that uh, a guy named John Dixon uh, showed me a while back. He's an Australian scholar, but it's been shown by many others as well. And that is the gospel in the ancient world was a political term. It was a royal term. It was a very technical term used very precisely. It wasn't just a, hey, I won my soccer game. That's gospel. It's not just good news in general. <laughs> it was a very specific type of good news. Mm-hmm. It announced when a king was born or reigned or had a victory. It was, and so uh, even Caesar preached a gospel. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And so it, it it was when someone talked about proclaiming the gospel, they heard overtly there's a proclamation of a king here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and you see this actually in the Hebrew scriptures as well. Um, you, you see it in, in even secular, I, I say secular, it is non overt, like salvation type situations, like Psalm 68, where the women are announcing the defeat of the king, the kings, the enemy kings. And it, it says that uh, the women who announce the good news and talks about the kings of the armies fleeing and fo- going away. Yeah. And so th- in the Old Testament, when that those two words, good news, are, uh, are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, mm-hmm. they use the same word for gospel. Yes. Like ungalizo, euangelion, um, and as well as the the typical word used for gospel in Hebrew. Okay, so I hope that's uh, helpful to our listeners. And it did make a connection. People should remember Jesus always preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. so 
Now that second theme, uh, I'll just make a transition where you see covenant and kingdom together. Okay, the very beginning of Romans verses one to four is one of the few very explicit summaries of the gospel that you find in all the Bible, where uh, Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I can't dive into all of this, but you see here he's, he gives a summary of the gospel and he starts talking a whole lot about his son and David and so forth. Well, a lot of times people forget that way back in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, God had made a promise that David's offspring would reign forever. And God said, I will call, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Mm-hmm. And that promise is reiterated in biblical text and in extra biblical text again and again and again. So you have here a merging of kingdom and covenant because the Davidic covenant was um, inherently royal. And the when you look at the Romans passage talking about the Christ, the Christ and Lord here, Christ meant anointed one. And the the person who was anointed overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions in the Hebrew Bible, is Israel's king. You see this again and yes. again and again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite beautiful to see this merging of covenant and kingdom themes right there as the description of the gospel of God. Mm. Yeah. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Paul has a one-line summary of the gospel where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You think of all the things he could have summarized in a really concise statement, he talks about the offspring of David. Because when you say that, you're saying a lot more than merely what you know his you know genealogy was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah david was israel's most favored king yeah now the example i love giving more most of all it comes from galatians 3 8 this is the one that <laughs> makes people scratch their head more than anything in galatians 3 8 uh, paul explicitly defines the gospel in terms of the abrahamic covenant he equates the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham, with the gospel. He doesn't say it's the background for the gospel. He says it is the gospel. So Galatians 3.8 says, uh, Paul writes, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and he quotes Genesis, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, I assume that none of us have heard a gospel presentation or received I was just a, say a that. gospel Never track. Never one time, no. not a single time where, in my decades where, have I ever heard a gospel presentation based upon Galatians 3.8. Yeah. And then going back to Genesis you know, 12, where it's quoting. And, but yet if we can't, as, as Christians, if we can't say, well, oh, obviously the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. Well, either we have a problem or Paul has a problem. Yeah. Mm. And I'm going to say that we have the problem because apparently our understanding of the gospel is insufficient 
if we cannot make sense of the fact that Paul equates Mm -hmm. the two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. But how do you get around the fact that there's nothing in here about, um, you know, the death of Jesus Christ or forgiveness of sins? Well, later in in the passage, you get a little bit more of that, but uh, because like you can't say everything in every passage. Okay. But the point being is that Jesus' death, his resurrection, all his ministry is put in the context of kingdom, covenant, and uh, creation, or creation, covenant, kingdom. Okay, okay. And I, I, I think relative to this passage, the way that all the nations are blessed is through the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and through the people's giving their allegiance to the Savior. Yes, and that is where uh, it's good to bring up the creation motif. Most people I know, when they think of the doctrine of creation, they basically think, okay, there's one true God and he created everything. In the story, move on. Well, in the Bible, you frequently have creation uh, as kind of the backdrop for explaining who Jesus is and his kingship. It really emphasizes this theme of the sovereignty of God and the scope of his kingdom. And you see this in Isaiah 40, uh, one of the precursors, uh, one of the Old Testament references to the gospel, um, where he talks about go on Go on the on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Uh, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And throughout that context, uh, Isaiah makes it very clear that the creator is the king and the king is the creator. It seems to me like these gospel presentations are focused less on the needs of the individual and they're focused more on the greatness of the savior the you know the bigness of mm-hmm. god his creative power his majesty uh the the grandeur of christ and who he is as the savior king who was willing to be crucified it, it seems like there's a, a flip in emphasis from what we're so used to. Yeah. yeah, and I think it comes out of the fact that people want to make the gospel feel relevant to people. They go, what does that have to do with me? I once heard a very famous preacher who kind of pushed back against this understanding of the gospel uh, entailing the whole grand narrative and, and not merely propositions and not merely focus on the individual because he said, okay, so God saves the world or, or God wants to make new creation, I should say. Uh, but what does that have to do with me is what he said. Mm. And I thought if God wants to make a new all of creation and bring justice to the world, that has everything to do with me. Yeah, the underlying assumption there, it seems, is like people aren't interested in that. You know? Right, right, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, and so it just perpetuates this notion of, well, as long as I take care of me and I, you know, uh, get off of this fallen, you know, dilapidated rock called earth, well, then I'm good. As opposed to saying, hey, I am a part of the human family and God is, wants to set all things to right and I get to be, a, get to join in that. Yeah, I, th- you know, you were just talking, Jackson, you said that, you know, you can't say everything every time, right? Like we saw in this Galatians 3 passage. And I actually think 
this is one of the big um, factors that really scares people about this conversation because they, you know, I've heard this a million times. I've got 30 seconds with someone in an elevator. Mm. What do you say to them about the gospel? You know, you've got a 10-minute taxi ride. What do you say about the gospel? And so it seems, I think, in this conversation that we have to be okay with the idea that we say things that are going to potentially be incomplete, and we pray the Holy Spirit will continue to unwrap that for that person later on. But if we try to whittle it down, I think I think this is what happens most of the time, is they say, I just got to give them Jesus. And so we whittle it down to Jesus died, resurrected, we're forgiven, we go to heaven. That's my elevator pitch, mm. right? So I guess I'm thinking, talk me out of why we shouldn't just elevator pitch the gospel. Wow. I could start a, 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 a bajillion different ways. <laughs> well, when you're talking about giving someone a message that is supposed to fundamentally change their core value, their core loyalty, their core identity, their their fundamental worldview. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen in 30 seconds anyways. Right. <laughs> okay. And then even if you do share a very true message and you say, you know, Jesus is the Christ who died for you and resurrected. Well, who is Jesus? And what does it mean that he's Christ? And why did he die? And Mm. What are you talking like? There's so much there that is incomprehensible. Yeah. And so, sure, we can share the gospel in 30 seconds every which way, but it won't be meaningful to them. And so, uh, those would be a few things I'd point out. And the truth is that no matter what, we're always picking and choosing in what we can and cannot say. So, someone who says, we need to share a lot more, we need to share a lot less. Uh, or let's say you say, wait, let's say we want to share a lot more. Well, guess what? You, you, you can't. You might as well just give them the Bible and keep your mouth shut because, well, there it all is. <laughs> but, you know, we don't want to do that. And you say, well, I can't say everything, so we got to keep it simplified. Well, that's fine. But that just, that just means that we have to make decisions based on that person, that situation, their understanding. And so the truth is that you're going to have to spend time. You're going to have to have a conversation over time, and you're just going to play a role. And so a lot of times for me, rather than – simply give them a quick sales pitch, I actually want to find out well, what's their background. And, and so I can start thinking through where do these themes, where does this story connect with their life so that they can see the fundamental message of the gospel is that Jesus is king and mm-hmm. is calling them to allegiance, to give allegiance to him. If I had one sentence, yeah. that's what I'd want to communicate is that Jesus is king of all and we need to give our allegiance to him. Your your cord's hitting the mic every time. This? Yeah, just put it on just so it doesn't hit the, yeah. There, okay. Yeah, I agree that I feel like if you had to just summarize it in one statement, Jesus is king, most people are going to have a sense of what that means as an individual and as a community. Yeah, and you can put all those themes together, and and I'll do that. Uh, I say in the book that... The gospel, in short, is something like this. The one true God creates all things, and therefore he is also the one true king of the world. And because his kingdom became corrupt, he established a series of covenants leading to the restoration of his creation. And so God covenants to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. And through his covenant with David, we find out that his promise is fulfilled 
through David's offspring, that is Jesus Christ. And in this way, the creator king keeps his covenant and establishes justice in the world. In just a paragraph, that's kind of how I tie together those three. And that whatever message we're preaching, we're constantly speaking from and to that mm-hmm. core message. So that's rooted quite a bit in a story. Mm. There's a narrative quality to that, which I think is not found in many gospel presentations that are just based upon prepositional mm-hmm. truth or four laws or, you know, four verses from Romans and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, uh, one, uh, you can imagine I face some objections at times, you know, people saying, well, what about atonement and what about justification and sacrifice and blood and all these sorts of things? Are you saying that's not a part of the gospel? And what I'd say is that, well, no, uh, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that they don't have anything to do with the gospel, but what I found in my research is that one of those three themes, creation, covenant, kingdom, at least one of them always appeared where the gospel was explicitly proclaimed. And everything else that kind of pops up, pops up sporadically, and I call those explanation themes. So the three themes are framework themes. They frame the gospel, like a house. And then all these other themes that we're accustomed to are what I'd call explanation themes. And they uh, highlight the significance of these themes and and help them have meaning so that you're not merely saying uh, he's a king and he made promises and he created everything. These other thing, these other themes help us un- unpack that and give a little bit more context. Okay, I want to go back to your statement that you made that essentially the gospel is that Jesus is king. Some would say, well, you know, as Americans, we don't have, we don't have a king in our country. So it doesn't relate to us as well. So um, furthermore, to say Jesus is king doesn't really help people, you know, know they're going to go to heaven. So, you know, is it really good news that Jesus is king? How would you respond to that? (laughs) Well, first off, people sometimes think Jesus as king is not the gospel because it didn't sound like good news to them. And the, the gospel is the gospel regardless of what we think about it. Let's just say that for, for, first off. And the reason why it's the gospel is because it's Jesus who is king. Right. Not merely that we have a king, but it's Jesus is king as opposed to Caesar, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, pick your person. It's a benevolent king. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And not just a benevolent king. He is one who willingly gave his life Philippians 2, Philippians 2, te, 2 says it wasn't just any death, but it was death mm-hmm. through, you know, the Roman cross, which was the most shameful, ignominious, you know, form of execution they could conceive of at the time. Yeah. The people sometimes don't realize this is good news because they want to be king over their own life. Well, why they want to be king is because they think they can work out everything for their good better than anyone else. But when you see Jesus for who he is and as the one true creator God, the one true creator king, you realize, ah, he has the wisdom and power to work out things far better than I can. And you realize, yeah, that's good news. And yes, in in America, there's not a king, but 
you know, they're still kings all over the world. And ultimately, what King is getting at is ultimate authority, ultimate power. Yeah, and I think that it's not just ultimate authority over me right, <laughs> or right. over the individual. Mm -hmm. The implicit in the idea of a king is that he has a, a reign, a community, a land, a nation, a, a, a realm, mm. and that implies community. So yeah. is that, in fact, a part of the gospel, the community aspect? Can you, can you uh, unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, Scott McKnight in Kingdom Conspiracy does a real good job unpacking this, that in proclaiming a kingdom, uh, making a royal proclamation, you're announcing a king, you're announcing a kingdom, his people, and you're, you're designating a sphere over which he rules. That's Every kingdom has those things. And so the whole world is his sphere. Those who follow Christ are his people, and Jesus is the king. So when proclaiming the gospel, all of those are wrapped up in that message, and it's just a matter of unpacking it. So how does that undo or how does that relativize the problem of individualism in the church? There's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you assume the gospel is merely an individual message of how you get saved, uh, suddenly the uh, discipleship becomes a lot harder and the church becomes far less relevant. It becomes kind mm -hmm. of icing on the cake because your fundamental identity as one of God's people doesn't change. You, you start to sec, uh, divide, dichotomize my loyalty to Jesus with my loyalty to the family of God that spans the whole world. And so uh, when you get this right, I think so much else falls into place because the truth is, is that uh, what you win them with is what you win them to. That is, if you're fundamentally preaching a message that just says this is how you get saved and that's kind of the totality of what you're emphasizing, mm -hmm. then— Here's, here's your ticket to heaven. Right. Then right. You're, you're subtly—as glorious and as good as that is, you subtly reinforce this idea that you're, this is all about you. And, and it's about you getting out of punishment and eternal reward or whatnot. Whereas if it's fundamentally about Jesus and a fundamentally new identity, then— I have ex there's expectations on me that I say, well, that's natural. Of course, I want to live in this way, and I want to represent the king, and I want to be his ambassador. And these, this is my family. Uh, we're like a you know uh, an embassy in the world. There's all these implications that naturally follow, and uh, I think that that is what was what makes discipleship possible is when you get that gospel right. I really saw this played out in my time in China because early on, you know, I came with my my. Nice, neatly packaged gospel presentations that involved usually four or five points. And the the things that my Chinese friends were saying is, this is not good news to me because if I believe this, I lose my community. I lose my family. My parents are going to, you know, not talk to me anymore. And that was a real point of contention for them. That's incredible, Carrie. In other words, you gave them the good news presentation as you were taught here, right. here in America. Right. And that was received by them in a way they actually told you this is not good news. Yeah. They said this is not this is the, kind of the death of me. And so it, what was interesting is we then needed to incorporate just what Jackson said. What are you being – uh, brought into mm. and so really emphasizing the role of 
church community. The, the role community, yeah. That had to be a part of the message of who Jesus was. In other words, our collective identity as the people of God is a critical part of yeah. the gospel. Yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, of a more and more robust explanation, understanding of the gospel. It needs to be a necessary implication, not merely a theological add-on. Yeah. Because it is a, a logical necessity that these are the people of God if you're talking about this is your king because his people become your kingdom, your right. family, right? And so I think it's in Mark where Jesus actually makes the explicit where Jesus makes the explicit statement that for those who have given up everything and family and house and home whatever else they will get like a hundredfold you know mother mm-hmm. and brother and sister and so forth and so on like it makes the explicit promise that you're going to get this family that's you know so much bigger and broader than you ever imagined it be, it's a part of his his positive proclamation of his kingdom yeah, yeah. beautiful now, the um, the last thing I'd want to add, I know our time is running short, is that these explanation themes are not arbitrarily thrown in every now and then just for color. They get their meaning uh, within the context of creation, covenant, and kingdom. And those explanation themes, whether it be atonement, justification, shepherding, these various kind of themes that pop up in the Bible, they are used again and again in the Bible by the biblical authors to answer four questions. And these four questions tend to have a priority order. If you're like, in other words, if you're going to see anything, you're going to see the first question answered, and then you're going to see the second one. And here are the questions that the biblical authors tend to ask or and tend to answer when they preach the gospel. First, who is Christ? Or in the Old Testament, who is God? Okay. Uh, so who? Two, what has Christ done? Three, why is Christ important? And four, how should we respond? So who, what, why, and how? And the central question that you always see addressed is this identity statement, who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? Um, And I think if you look at Acts, you'll see that that's the overwhelming emphasis there. And then various passages unpack those other questions in different ways. What has he done? Why does he matter to me and to us? And then, of course, technically the fourth question is not part of the gospel. It's part of a gospel presentation, you know, because how do you respond to this gospel? Um, but anyway, you, you, you can just see this unpack in diverse ways in the book of Acts. So to begin wrapping up, Jackson, why don't, uh, why don't we go to the book of Acts? And if you could give us uh, a few final thoughts on the gospel as it was presented in the book of Acts by the apostles and by Paul. Yeah, absolutely. One example that I like pulling from is Acts 13. Very, very lengthy message. And in verses 32 and 33, uh, they're preaching and they say, we bring you the good news, that is the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And he goes on and unpacks a little more of how God fulfilled his promise to David and to Abraham, but he makes explicit that the good news here is that God has kept his promise. And throughout Acts, without fail, there's emphasis given on the fact that Jesus was raised, that God resurrected him. You don't always get 
Jesus' death and crucifixion explicitly mentioned. It's obviously implicit to the fact that he was raised. And I'm not saying that they minimized Jesus' death. But what I am saying is that above everything, they wanted to make sure that the resurrection was front and center for people to face and that that was tied to the fact that Jesus was king. Yeah, that's really mm-hmm. great. I'm just going to read these uh, these verses. Uh, it, verse th- beginning with verse 32 uh, in Acts 13, you've already mentioned it. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. There is the resurrection. Um, As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And it's very interesting to refer to the second psalm because this is a royal psalm. This is a song about, a psalm about the king. Then it says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Then again, he, quote, he quotes the psalm, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. So this is referring to the Davidic covenant in mm-hmm. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not your, let your holy one see corruption. Then verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom... God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's what kings did. Mm -hmm. When kings came to power, they set people free. That was one of the first things that ancient kings frequently did. And some people say, well, he's talking to Jews here. Well, you see this even in Acts 17, this theme. Uh, at the beginning of Acts 17, one of the most overlooked passages where he's in uh, uh, Thessalonica, or uh, he, they accuse Paul of, uh, he's preaching some other king. He's preaching someone else besides Caesar. And when you look at what he was preaching, it said that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Yes. So yeah. they... Simply, they misunderstood his message. They got they got his message quite clear. That's why they they said that they misunderstood misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And in Acts seventeen, you see a lot more of this creation motif, talking about the scope and sovereignty of God. But it leads to the fact that because Jesus is raised, he's going to judge the world with righteousness. And I get into the, to this in the book. I won't go here, but it's a positive judgment of setting the world right. It's a very particular phrase that's used only a few times, and it's what a king does and making things right and good. So, you know, we could go on and on, but those are just a few examples of what you see in in Acts. I think it would be uh, a good exercise for some of our listeners uh, to do this, and that is to look up the phrase "the Christ." Mm. In Luke Acts, the mm. uh, Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and see how often that phrase appears. The Christ refers to the title of Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ. Christ is not the last name right. of Jesus. It's right. it's the title of Jesus. Yeah. That Ro- means the, the Anointed One, right. uh, the Messiah King. Yes, and and 
when you see this thread going from the beginning of the gospel of Luke to the end of uh, the book of Acts, you see the emphasis over and over again, Jesus is the Christ. And this plays out in practice. I'll just, I mean, I'll end with this story. I was asking some of my Chinese brothers and sisters, uh, we, were, we were talking about a conventional message you hear in these tracks versus the message that we're talking about today. And the ultimate authority in China is the chairman. Um, and, and I said, what if we proclaim the message, Jesus is chairman. Yes, who do juicy. Wow. And I said, would that make a difference? To... And they were like, oh, wow. Yes, that makes complete sense. I said, are there any questions about what that entails or implies? Oh, no, no, no. That makes everything clear. I don't have any questions if that's the message. And because they understood uh, more than, than all the various the true theological points I was sharing what it meant to say that Jesus is king and it is, everything fell into place for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That brings up the word allegiance or loyalty. Mm. That's a whole yeah. nother podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> Dealing with the word pistis. And, yes. Yeah. And what it, it makes faith a lot, have make come a lot more sense. Yeah. Than yeah. Rather yeah. than just be cognizant. It's yeah. not just a, uh, uh, you know, some neutrons in the brain giving assent to Jesus as Savior. Mm. There's mm. there's something about our loyalty and our lifelong allegiance to this to this King that's inherent uh, in in um, in that phrase, allegiance to a King. So, yeah. any f- other good. other words to share before we we wrap up, Carrie? I think that's good. I think yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today uh, in this podcast, Doing Theology, Thinking, Mission. We'll hope to circle back with you next time. 